I want to start a journey with you for, for a couple of sermons, uh, maybe three, on what it's like to really follow Jesus. We're going to kind of touch that theme for the next few times that I'm up. So I'm preaching today. I'm not going to preach for the next two Sabbaths as I'm away on, on my military duty Thank you, Lord. This is the last leg of trips I have to make until the end of July. So I look forward to staying home. Um, and then, yes, I know. And then in July, we're going to start a sermon series in the book of Revelation. That's going to be really exciting. I invite you to, to, to come for that. Uh, and it's going to be roundtable format, Okay. Uh, the next two Sabbaths from that I begin to speak, we're going to have round tables. This is the last. So if you want to come sit down and just listen, that's, you get two more weeks of this after this one. And then we're going to get into the word together as a church through round tables. So I invite you to, 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 to mark your calendars for that. Okay? So today, first slide, please. This picture does no justice because of... The projector, it's dark, darkened a little bit, but you will notice that this is a picture of my family. My family, this was taken, I want to say, what, 15 years ago? Um, 14 years ago at my cousin's wedding. Now, um, as you can see, this is my cousin. This is my nephew who is going to his junior year in high school already. Okay, that's my sister's. This is my sister, Lauren. This is my brother, Raph, who looks more and more like me now. Um, back then, I had hair. I don't know more anymore. Uh, the only person who hasn't aged in this picture is Vivian. So uh, you can see here's my dad and my mom. Uh, my brother-in-law here with Karina, my, my youngest sister, and this is Alex, who just graduated eighth grade on Thursday. This is the last time we're all together like this. The, 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 the last time that came close to be anything remotely like this was at my grandmother's funeral. But today we're talking about weddings, Right? We're talking about weddings, and, and this was the very first time that actually the entire extended families from my side and my mother's side worked. Well, this was the last time we were all together. I mean, talking about my cousins on both sides, it was a big, big, big party. And it was funny because during, during the wedding ceremony, my cousin-in-law, if you know, uh, his name is Junior, or Alajir, he goes by Junior. He was so nervous. He was so nervous, and, and, and we did the, the, the rehearsal, and I said, here's what you're going to do. And I, I gave them a copy of, of the vows that, you know, what we were going to do and say, and I ran over the vows with them. I said, this is what you're going to do. And I will say, you know, repeat after me. And he was so nervous, he forgot, and so he... When it time, after the homily and the time came for the vows, I looked at him and I said, all right, Junior, repeat after me. And he goes, Junior, repeat after me. <laughs> and, and, and I'm like, 
you got to substitute your name. He's like, oh, 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 oh. You know, it, it kind of broke the ice, but it was all fun. And until this day, we talk about it. Hey, do you remember this? Yeah. Last time we all got together, but what I want to highlight is that after the wedding, the wedding reception was held in the same place that the wedding was, the ceremony was held. It was just the same venue. And so after the wedding ceremony was over, there was actually a platform that uh, straddled the pool. So they had built this thing where they, there was like almost like a catwalk. And so both uh, my cousin and, and her, her husband to be walked up on, and I was sitting over there. I'm like, man, I hope this thing doesn't fall. Um, that would really be something. But after it was all said and over, said and done, they, we stayed, and we had a big, big, big party. Did you know Jesus loves social gatherings? As a matter of fact, some of you already may know this, that his very first miracle took place in a social gathering. As, did you know that he was invited, personally invited, to come and to attend? I'd like to invite you to uh, open your Bibles with me to the book of John, chapter 2. John, chapter 2, and we're going to take the... Uh, we're going to read from chapter 2 all the way to verse 12, but we're going to dissect this a little bit. And we're going to look at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Whoa. Okay. And it says this. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee. Pause. The third day. What day is the first day? What day is the second day? Monday. What day is the third day? Who, who has a wedding on a Tuesday? Weddings usually take place on a weekend, right? On a Saturday night or a Friday night or, or during the day or, the, or on Sunday. Weddings are usually weekend events where people can come from all over the place, right? Not this one. This starts on Tuesday. There's a reason why it didn't really matter what day the wedding was. Because when the weddings took place in biblical times, it was a ceremony that lasted, do you know how many days? Seven. Seven. Actually, it wasn't the ceremony. The ceremony lasted one hour-ish. The festivities lasted seven days. I'm sure glad I don't have to pay for a party for seven days when my daughter gets married. Right? Can you imagine the bill? Seven days of me feeding a bunch of people? I barely even wanted a party in my own wedding because I didn't want to pay for people to eat. <laughs> but I lost. But anyway, here they're coming together, right? They're coming together. It says on the third day, on Tuesday, they're coming together in Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. See, Cana takes, takes place, here's a little geographical uh, idea of where it sits. 
Jesus is famously called Jesus of Nazareth, right? Here's Nazareth. Here's Tiberias. Here's Capernaum. And I can't read that. I need my glasses. But here, here's Capernaum and here's Cana. Here's what's important. It's 20 miles from Capernaum. This is the very first miracle that Jesus took place. Now it's said here that on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. You have to remember that this is in the heels of Jesus being called into the desert. Jesus, after he was baptized, went into the desert. This is so roughly about 50 days after his baptism. He stayed out in the desert for how long? 40. 40 days and 40 nights. If you want to do an interesting study for a personal Bible study, look how many times you find the number 40 days and 40 nights in the Bible. It's very interesting. You will find it rained on the, in the earth, on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights with Noah. You notice that Elijah was in the cave for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. And Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And each time, each time at the end in the conclusion of those 40 days and 40 nights, something powerful happened. We are going to embark on a 40-day, 40-night journey at some point here before the year is out. Just let you know ahead of time. And I invite you to jump on that journey with us. But Jesus has just left that desert. And he is now coming around and he has just finished calling his disciples. But here the Bible says that Jesus was invited along with his disciples. But it doesn't say that Mary was, but it's just that she was there. Mary was there. There's a clue to why her name is not mentioned as being invited. And it's the first clue we get is found in verse 3. And when they ran out of wine, the mother Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Right? Jesus said to her, woman, <laughs> don't ever start a sentence like that. Not in today's culture. <laughs> Woman, I'm going to get into this here real quick. What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. See, they're in this wedding. And in this, another aspect of the Jewish wedding that we have to understand is that there are two parts, two elements of the wedding. There's a betrothal, and then there's the wedding. The betrothal is actually, well, here's a little bit more about Capernaum, um, but the betrothal is actually a contract where there it states the husband's duty to his wife and the amount of money is due her at the point of the betrothal. You know what we call this today? A prenup. It's biblical. No. There's a reason why this is here. The betrothal had a contract because it needed to safeguard 
women at that time. It, it was a much, much more of a male-driven society than it is today, to the point of almost being chauvinistic. And so when they gave this betrothal, the, the, the gentleman came to the house. It actually was presented to the parents of, of his future wife. Here is my commitment to your daughter. See, this does not outline what happens if they divorce. What this outlines is these are guarantees that I will perform for your daughter. I mean, I would love my future son-in-law to say, here's my commitment of what I would like to do and what I will commit to in providing for for your daughter. This is not a prenup. Because what it does, you also have a, 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 an, an endowment. It's, it, it's a sum of money that is due to her family that is put away should something happen to him. Either a divorce because he cheated on her or death. So she was not left because when somebody died in, in that setting, the, the wife did not receive the benefit of the property it would go to the male child. That's why when you read the story of Ruth, she was left penniless because her husband died and her two sons died. And though they were married with no kids, she was not able to inherit the property that was once her husband's. So this betrothal contract is a safeguard to protect the wife, the bride. But then there's the wedding, right? In, in the wedding, there is some things that take place. The wedding is usually performed under a canopy called a chuppah. And this is done in a variety of settings. And you can see here, one is, is, in, a, in, a, is in a synagogue, another one is outdoors, and a variation of it also in a, in a church, they would come, they would, the couple would, in, once the betrothal aspect in the, was, was done, where the contract is exchanged, the, the, the groom and the bride would march from the house where she used to live, because she lives there no longer. They march under this canopy, under song and dance throughout the city, to the place where they're now going to live. And there, everybody comes and they have the wedding feast and ceremony at the, at the new place where they both are going to live for seven days. So it's a journey. The family walks together. The family and friends, they witness the exchange of the contract. They witness the exchange of the, of the vows, per se. And they go together singing and dancing all the way to the new place of residence. And there they celebrate for seven days. And at some point in the midst of these seven days, Jesus' mother comes out of nowhere. And she says, Son, the wine has ended. There's no more wine left. 
his response is almost to the tunes of, who do I have to do with this? It's not my problem. Not my party. It almost sounds like that. But it isn't. We have to really understand to how Jesus really treated his mom. To understand what kind of a of a dialogue he's having here between his mom and them here in, in John chapter 2. Jesus, when he was um, a boy, when Jesus was a boy, he went to Jerusalem with his family. And he was forgotten. His parents forgot their child. I've shared with you from, it's almost a year now, how we lost my son. And I remember distinctively the feeling and the eeriness of, I lost my child. They walked through two days journey and had not noticed that their son was missing. So they had to walk back and they found him at the temple and, and Mary's like, we, where were you? And Jesus' response to her was, do you not know I must be about my father's business? The interesting part about this is that he wasn't scolded, he wasn't, he wasn't beaten, he, wasn't, he hadn't done anything, Right? But he answered in a way that, don't you know, I must be about my father's business. Reminding her of the sanctity of her role as the mother in having to raise up the son of God to be the Messiah. Let that sink in for a little bit. You carried the son of God in your womb. You saw him grow up. You taught him the scriptures. You forget him at the temple. But rather than him saying, how could you leave me behind? His response was, don't you know? I must be about my father's business. Reminding her that his mission was not forgotten. Later on, we find that when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looks to John and he says, Behold your mother. If there was any ever resentment in the way that Jesus treated his mom, it hi it's highlighted, it's, it's not highlighted anywhere in scriptures. But yet she is highlighted as being a person of affection, so much so that he looks to John and says, She's now your mother because I consider you my brother. Look, behold, your mother. There was always a special place in Jesus' heart for her, as there should be. But the way that he, he dealt with her was always in a respectful manner. Though we read the, this text like this, it doesn't quite mesh with our culture and society today. Let's continue. 
says, his mother said to her servants, whatever he says, you do. Now there were there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. How big is our tank? 450 gallons. How many water pots were there? Six. Six. At, two, at 20 gallons. Let's make the math. So it's about half of, our, half of our baptismal tank. I know some of you have not been there, but I know, Cyrus, you have. Um, to have that full of water takes a while to fill. They didn't have a pump. They didn't have a hose. The wedding feast is still going on, and the Bible tells us that Jesus tells them, hey, go fill these. And each pot had 20 gallons. Some had 30. Can you imagine how long it took for them to fill those? Let's continue. And they filled up to the brim. They weren't half full. They were full. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn waters knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out of the good wine. And when the guests are well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And this went down... After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. I mentioned that there was a, the text gives us a, a kind of an indication as to why, why Mary was not invited. And we see that here in verse 10. It says, Every man at the beginnings sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have, you have left the good wine until now. The master of the ceremony is usually the person who takes care of all of the details of the house, of the party, of the celebration. He had no clue that they were running out of wine. But Mary did. See, Scholars have, have come to the conclusion that this family was, had very intimate relationships with Jesus' family. They were connected somehow. So that's why Mary's not really mentioned so much as being invited because she was already there. Now Jesus is being invited because he doesn't live any longer with Mary. And so they invite his disciples. Word has gotten around that Jesus, after his baptism, picked a few to follow him after he had come out of the desert. 
word spread. See, we, we look at the Bible text and we don't, sometimes we forget to connect the dots of stories that gives us a pretty good idea and an indicator of what takes place and the manner it takes place. So this is what just happened. Jesus receives a personal invitation along with his entourage, his disciples. They arrive there, and Mary says, there's no more water. There's no more wine. But Jesus, does, he, his answer to, to, to Mary is, my time has not yet come. The reason he answers her that way is because he's also addressing the silent wish as any mother would naturally have for her son. If you knew, as Mary did, that that person she carried in her belly was the Son of God, is the Son of God, wouldn't you want him or her, in this case Jesus, to, be, to exercise his God-given calling? If you knew as a parent that your son or daughter had a specific calling or task, aren't you going to do everything, everything possible to make sure that they fulfill that task? If your son or daughter has received instructions from on high that you will become, aren't you going to do everything in your power to make sure that, that they succeed? Amen. And that's what she did. She's coming to him and says, knowing full well as the Son of God is sitting there in front of her. Hey, this might be a good opportunity for you to show us who you really are. And so he answers her in that manner. My time has not yet come. It's humbling when as a as a parent, your child answers you in a way that you should understand, but you don't. So he's addressing her inner thoughts. I would, I would almost label it like, Mom, chill, not yet. <laughs> right? Not yet. Relax. Not there yet. But he answers her in this manner. My time's not yet come. He also addresses her in this way for us. Now, as we read this story, having an intimate relationship to Jesus is no assurance of favoritism. Or that it would distract him from his father's business, his father's business. You know, very often we as Christians, we, we open our Bibles, we read God's promises, and we go to God and we expect him to listen to our prayers. We expect him to fulfill our desires, to fulfill our needs. Lord, you promised that I would have this. But in the Bible, there's no ever guarantee that you will be without suffering, that you will be with everything you provided the way that you expect it. The Bible says, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to have any desires. It means that you will have 
the necessary items to get you by. And getting you by is very different than what you think is getting by means. Some people may expect that to be God's going to open the door and it's going to be very clear which way I have to go. No, that is not what it says. That's not what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be Christian is trust the Lord with all your, God, with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and lean not into your own understanding. And I will acknowledge your path. I will set your path for you. It doesn't mean God is not some kind of a genie in a bottom where you rub it and up pops out a genie and says, so what wish would you like today? It doesn't work that way. Jesus is reminding Mary right now. He says, listen, just because you're my mom doesn't automatically guarantee you a place of favor before God. Never yet, nevertheless, he does it. The book Desire of Ages also says this, the claims of God are paramount even to the ties of human relationship. No earthly attraction should turn our feet from the path which he bids us to walk. So now the the wine is set. As men set forth the best wine first. This is a direct quote from the the book Desire of Ages. Page 148, paragraph 3. Then afterward that which is worse. So does the world with its gifts. That which it offers may please the eye and fascinate the senses, but it proves to be what? Unsatisfying. Jesus understood his calling. That he was to come and to be the Savior. And regardless of what circumstances was before him, it could not detract him from what God had asked him to do. He reminded his mother, says, listen, chill, relax. Not my time yet. Why? Because when the opportunity comes for you to either be successful before the world's eyes, and I'm not talking about us versus them. I'm talking about a, a, a potential compromise where you have to compromise values, Christian principles, in order for you to achieve your desire. See, I don't believe that God will ever place you in a place of compromise with the intentions of you compromising his principles for you to be successful. I believe that he will put you in those positions to test your faith to see if you are going to trust him. And when you do, then the doors are open. But when you don't, he will allow you to walk through. 
He will allow you to get these experiences and maybe become successful before the world's eyes. But I promise you, it does not compare with what the plans God has for you. It cannot, it will not, it never will compare. Because when we look to accomplish our own plans, when we look to accomplish our own desires, and we accomplish them, we get an automatically right quick after we're done, like, oh man, it doesn't sit quite right. There's a void, there's, there's, there's a hole that is not being filled because we have not put God first. And so, the Bible tells us that this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and it manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You know, I find it interesting that these disciples were with Jesus when he was baptized. It's written there in Matthew chapter 3, 2 and 3. John, James, Peter, Andrew. They were actually followers of John the Baptist. And when Jesus came, he, they heard Jesus, John say, I need to, I'm not worthy to even tie your sandals. I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus' reply was, you must, you must do in order to be fulfilled. I need to become baptized. So, so John, his cousin, baptizes him. And as soon as he comes out of that water, God himself breaks through space and, and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. For the first time in over thousands of years, God breaks the silence and communicates his pride in his son at that very moment. But notice that John talks about here. It wasn't until after the miracle and his disciples believed in him. See, it doesn't matter how many miracles you will witness in your life. The miracles in of themselves are not a guarantee of belief. Nor of faith. They will serve to solidify your faith, but they are not the answers to your faith. And in so doing, his disciples began to see not only that Jesus was different than all the others, but there was something special. So you, we have to understand that this miracle, where this miracle takes place, and I've already given you the background context. They have already heard God breaking through. They had already seen him go through the desert experience. They already witnessed Jesus coming to them by the boat in the Sea of Galilee and say, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they dropped everything and they followed him. No miracle had been performed up until this point, and now they arrive at the wedding feast in Cana, and Jesus performs this, where the best wine is served later. I mean, just the, the, the sheer statistical improbability of this taking place 
is mind-blowing. Water goes in, wine comes out. Not only wine, but the best. Has God called you to do something that you're reluctant in doing? Has God called you to do something that you're saying, I don't see it. I, I'm not sure if I should. But if God has called you, why not? What's keeping you from taking that step forward? What's keeping you from taking that ladle and drawing from that container? I mean, can you imagine? The, the, the servants are told, here, fill it up with water. And they did. Now what? Pick, you know, take, they could see. It was filled to the brim. Uh, I just put water here. Okay. When was the last time you had that encounter with God? That you, in the midst of all impossibilities, you actually took that step in faith. Believing in Jesus is not the same as knowing and following his plan for your life. There are some of you who may come to church because you believe and have heard of Jesus, but you're not really following him. We may think we do. I'm, and, and when I'm saying this, I'm talking about myself too. I'm not saying, hey, I'm the pastor, hey, I'm better than you. No, by all means. I'm talking about stepping out in faith, literally taking the ladle and drawing it out of that water when you know that you only put in water and drawing wine as a result of your faith. There's some of you who need to really understand what that is. You need to follow, not just here or here, but here in your feet. You know, we have a saying for that in today's world. Put your money where your mouth is. You gotta walk the walk. It's not just about Hey, I'm going to go do my church thing today. Done. Check. It's about walking the walk. There's some of us here who need to walk the walk. More so than we ever did before. And that comes at a cost. Are you willing to surrender that cost and allow Jesus to perform the miracles in your life that need to be done? Are you willing to allow him to say, go ahead, draw? I know you only put in water, but I got something much better for you. I know you only saw water. I know you only see water, but 
pull it out. It's going to be the best tasting wine you'll ever had. May God bless you.